You're listening to The Running Public. From marathoners to mud runners, we all have the same goal. Get to the finish line faster. That's right. This podcast is for you guys, The Running Public. This is The Running Public's Training Tuesday Training Tuesday is where we talk about training only. One topic, we dive deep, we explore it completely. It's training, it's Tuesday. Training Tuesday. Tuesday, Tuesday, Tuesday. Surprise, the, the red light's on. Surprise indeed. Bracken, you're making me work on the weekend, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say it's unjust. I feel bad because you literally last weekend told me, you know, I really value my weekend time. Did I tell you that last week? Yeah, because we were talking about, maybe it was, yeah, we were talking about doing the Utah coverage. And I said, are you glad you did it? And you said, surprisingly, yes. I, th- I thought I wasn't going to be happy because I really value my weekend time. I did say that. And now two weekends in a row, I've invited you to work. Well, uh, and yes, I did enjoy the Utah coverage. In fact, I hope we get a chance to do it again because that was a lot of fun. And I think we can work the kinks out. Um, but today it's Sunday. We've never, we've never in the history of the running public recorded on a Sunday. I don't think so. Well, and it's my fault. Is. Tell, tell us, tell us why we're working on a Sunday Bracken. This is going to sound familiar, but it's camping season again. <laughs> Shocking. Heading out with, uh, with Lisa's side of the family and we extended last minute the camping trip one day earlier. So our scheduled Monday recording is no longer viable. Here we are. And you know what? I'm enjoying. I, I thought you know, waking up to you on a Sunday. I just finished my cup of coffee. I thought, well, like, ugh, it might be kind of a drag to record. But here I am sitting talking to you, and I could start every Sunday this way back. And it wouldn't be the worst, would it? I I haven't told you this yet. I had a dream about you this week. You've not told me. I meant to tell you, and then I. It, just slipped my mind because it wasn't like a salacious dream or anything but you in the dream you weren't even in it really you just sent me a text okay and it said hey just sold the lake house wasn't all a crack it was cracked up to be just not sustainable we're we're looking in this neighborhood you should check it out and you sent me some name of some minnesota neighborhood that was near trails near a ski resort and you were telling me I should look into moving there too. Hmm. That was it. That was the entire dream. And then it switched to something else. The dream wasn't even about us. Just in the middle of my dream, I got a text from you saying, I'm moving. You should join me. And what this is telling me is that I could roll out of bed every Sunday morning and go for a, a trail run yeah. with you. That'd be a good way to, 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 to start a Sunday. Wouldn't that be a treat? I keep trying to get my, my mom to move here. Um, and I'm convinced she will, but you have the same pull that she has is, you know, I got a 95 year old grandmother. So her parents, her mom is still around. Mm-hmm. Um, and you live right next to your parents. Like there's no way you're going to pry anybody away from their family, no matter how enticing it's not going to happen. So mom will get here eventually when the time comes, but, uh, for now, yeah, but I'll tell you what, Bracken, this has been, uh, and we talked about this a little off mic, but we're going to jump into the topic pretty quick, but it's been a long week on my end. You are looking at me in my office. You're looking at me in my recording studio. You're looking at me in my bedroom for the last six days. Uh, behind me is a, a futon turned into a bed. We have been in the quarantine uh, mode over here since Monday. Uh, girlfriend Jess got COVID 
uh, 102 degree fever, the whole deal, like not feeling good. And so we've been in isolation. So I've been the cook around the house. Usually I come home and she's got dinner made. It's really nice. All those little things, you don't realize how damn nice they are until suddenly they're gone. Laundry, little things like that. I've been running the household over here. Props to anybody who's keeping the house tidy on their end. I'll tell you what, it's been a week. It's been a week, Bracken. And you still somehow have never had COVID. No, I have not. I get surprised every time I hear someone say, hey, finally got COVID. Like, God, I just mm-hmm. had it. How how, how, has, how have people avoided it this long? It, it amazes me that years in, some people still haven't had it. And I work in a gym. Mm-hmm. I run group sessions of six people every day where they're breathing hard. Um, we're touching a lot of equipment, all of that. And so all of those things, yeah, and I still haven't. And Jess and I... She got sick and she, bless her heart, came home from work on Monday feeling like crap. And she hadn't tested yet, but uh, made dinner for me, you know. And I was like, don't, why did you make dinner? Like, go to sleep. Like, she's just so sweet. Tested positive, but we were eating dinner next to each other that night. We slept in the same bed that night and then decided, like, let's try not to give this to Kirk. And now I'm six days later and still don't have it. So I have no idea. No idea, Bracken. It's a crazy world, Kirk, and I don't understand really, it. It's just, and I'm the guy who gets sick after, like, if I like, if I'm like within a football field's radius of someone who's sick, I usually get it. So <laughs> maybe you finally fortified, like you had stress fractures for years, and you finally don't have them. Maybe this too. Maybe you've just all that you've developed so much scar tissue, you're now just bulletproof. It's true. It's true. I've tested three times. I think that's science. science. Or I'm just like a day out. And by the time this episode releases, <laughs> I'll be eating all of these words. I'm just speaking right now. Yeah. Either way, we'll get through it. Um, should we jump into today right away? Jump in. What are we doing today? Q&A. It's been a while. Woo. Uh, I can tell you that the, actually, it hasn't been that long. So the oldest screenshot I have is from May 24th. So this is actually pretty good for us because we cleaned up our side of the street with our last Q&A. Happy birthday. Happy birthday. Birthday Q&A session was the last thing we did. So it's been two months? Yeah. It always feels like we just did one, though, doesn't it? Yeah. I really like these 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 questions, though. I like these episodes, so I look forward to them. Me too. I'll throw the first one at you. This is from an athlete of mine, uh, Andrew Lorenzo. Mm. Um, he lives over in Australia. Um, he, he has this uh, Superman sort of alter ego, um, so he... Melbourne super Spartan. Yeah, he's Superman. the man. I love Andrew. But anyways, he always is the first person to send his check-ins to me because he claims he's in the future, which he is like 16 hours. So we have this running joke about mm-hmm. uh, he's always done his. By the time I wake up, he's already done like tomorrow's workout. So it's always like a real trip to me to remember where he's at. Anyways, he says, sorry, another question as well. The super shoe. I have three pairs of vapor flies and a pair of alpha flies. I love them. Granted that... he's serious granted they're not very supportive and if i'm not careful or if i use them too many times in the week my ankles start to feel it not the point but i i digress my question today i went for an eight mile progression running my vapor flies normally i can really feel the shoe helping me move at a much more efficient pace i know that part of that is placebo but they really do deliver a return that helps the faster pace on the run that said today it was very cold out i didn't feel like the shoe was doing its normal job so does the super foam and the super shoe have a problem in colder temperatures? May I remind you, it's winter in Australia right now, I believe. So he's in opposite season. 
Will the cold affect the return that it gets? Maybe it was just a coincidence, but I certainly did not feel like they were the shoe that I've come to know and love. I should add that these were one of the newer pairs, so it's not like they were worn out. Hmm. Never thought of that question. It's a good question. What's your take? It's certainly possible. With the super foams, some of them have the claim that they are impervious to weather. Others are more susceptible to weather, and it really comes down to what gases are they injecting into the foam? What is their secret sauce mix? Because different gases react differently to fluctuations in temperature. When you think about a basketball or a soccer ball, if you fill it up in summer and you take it out of your garage in winter, yeah, some air is leaked out, but it's just dull. You don't have as th- those those air molecules in there aren't firing around and pushing out against the edges of the basketball or the soccer ball anymore. Same thing on a hot day versus a cold day. Let me interject real quick. Why don't you explain what you mean by the gases they inject? Like people probably don't think of uh, their sole of their shoe in relation to gases injected. Hmm. Why don't you explain that? So the way that foam is made is that it is blown out. You can you picture think think of it like the uh, the spray insulation. You blow it out of this tube and it just expands and fills the space. And the only way to expand is with some sort of gas or air inside of it to provide that expansion. So all foams contain air molecules inside of it. And what the R and D departments have figured out is that you don't have to use the standard foam or the standard gases inside of it. If you put nitrogen in there, uh, people tried um, helium pods back in the day, thinking it'll reduce uh, gravity's effect on you. Uh, but nitrogen's uh, nitrogen-infused foams are a big thing right now, and so. When you have this, they call them supercritical foams. It's special polymer in the foam and special gases that they're combining together to create a foam that has a much lighter weight, but higher rebound off the ground because every gas has different properties and how it reacts with force being put upon it, uh, temperature, all the all these sort of factors that combine into the foam that goes into your shoe. So the super foam is simply advanced foam that has different gases and it's tuned differently. They, they've they worked on the composition so they, they get the most bang for your buck with the least amount of weight in there. But some foams react very poorly to temperature and others react much, much better. Adidas Boost back in the day when that first came out, one of the things they talked about is that this is impervious to weather. You're going to have your shoes will not turn into a slab of hard rubber underneath you. It's going to always have cushion even when it's cold. The cushion changes slightly, but less than the standard EVA uh, foam. So some of these current foam, they're the opposite. In great condition, they're great. If it gets too hot, they get sloppy. If it gets too cold, they get firm. So that is a real issue that you could be having. And I don't know how Zumax responds. That's what Nike has in the Vaporfly and the Alphafly, Zumax. It's one of the lightest, spongiest, springiest foams. Generally, when you're on the far end of the spectrum, you're more susceptible to everything. If you get super light, it breaks down real fast. And that's what happens with Zumax. It compresses fast. And that's what he alluded to. These are new. They haven't lost their pop yet. Nike Zumax is known for a super short shelf life. You get one marathon, maybe two out of your racers if you're doing like four or five workouts in between, and that's it. Hmm. That was a really good explanation, by the way. That was that was clear as day, actually. That was Thank thorough. You. 
Um, I wish I could chime in on this because I have alpha flies on the way, but I don't have them yet. So I don't have any experience with this, but I will say like through the years and your ball re uh, reference was actually a really good one. Um, <clears throat> I think every material becomes more like dense and less springy. I mean, every single thing seems to have less mm -hmm. uh, return of energy when it's colder out. So it would make sense. Um, and for somebody who's really in touch with their shoe and in touch with their body, like Andrew is, you're probably not wrong in some capacity. Maybe you had flat legs that day and that also combines to it, but um, I don't think you're crazy for asking that question, that's for sure, and I think there's probably some validity to it, but I, I can't really add anything to what you said because it was fantastic. Thank you. And, it, and you notice it more in those shoes. It'd be like going out on a on the firm ground. Like when you're in grass and it's summer, it feels pretty spongy. In winter, it feels pretty hard, but you feel like, yeah, I could run either way in this. But if you went out on a trampoline and suddenly the springs were dull, you would really notice the difference in mm -hmm. your bounce. And that's how these super shoes are. They give you so much that when it's reduced at all, it's very noticeable. Mm -hmm. When your foam compresses, the Nikes, when, they, when they're dull, suddenly you know it. My brother cracked the plate on his Nike Zoom Fly, which is their composite, not their carbon plate, I believe. And he, uh, the moment it cracked, it was dead. It was suddenly no pop in the shoe. So when things go wrong on those high-end pieces of gear, it's super noticeable. Um, we'll move to the next one. Dan Saxby. Before we do, Kirk, I have a Q&A question that has been not asked but will get asked and really should be added to the end of our Super Shoe episode. So I just want to talk about it. And that's the ankle piece he was talking about. Hmm. If you run too often in Super Shoes or not often enough – your Achilles and ankles are susceptible to hurting, especially Saucony. Uh, really, the more it has a firm shoe and a roll to it, the more that your ankle can hurt. And the more that there is bounce and higher drop, the more that your Achilles mm. can hurt. It's just a different stimulus to your leg, and it's doing it in a slightly unnatural way to how you've moved your entire life. So you have to dose your shoes if you're going to go into that super shoe realm that we've kind of encouraged recently through the lens of this could be a recovery tool. You can't use it every single day. Some people can get away with it, but a lot of people ran into Achilles and calf issues when they overuse them. And people also run into those if they don't use it enough and then just pull it out on race day without having built their legs into it a little bit. So it's one of those you have to use just the right amount for you. So just my PSA I wanted to add into there. You're not crazy if you've been running in your new Saucony Endorphin Pros that were 50% off these last few weeks and you notice outside of my ankles are hurting now. That happens to a lot of people. And so you got to dose it right. We sure have been talking about super shoes a lot, haven't we, Bracken? We have. I'm hoping we'll move on here. Not because I'm <laughs> bored of it, but because I imagine some people are. Like there's a whole, sec we there's can move a whole on sector right of people who have no interest in hearing about shoes. I mean, the more I get into this, the more I, I'm interested in, in shoes. And now I feel like I'm really invested in shoes. But there was a majority of my life where I was like, stop with the shoes already, like anybody. you know. Now I'm past that. Now I can't get enough. But sorry to those who uh, are in the stop with the shoes already category. Um, all right, Dan Saxby. Hey, Dan. Uh, sorry, another Q&A. Both these guys led with sorry. Don't be sorry. For sending us questions folks sorry we're giving you material for episodes yeah you, you guys suck uh does consuming iodized salt versus sea salt make a difference for runners was recently told my sea salt on my eggs provided no value with iodine 
Um, whoever told you that, just slap them a little bit. Um, uh, slap them a lot of bit. Um, that is splitting hairs to the nth degree. Um, salt is salt as far as water retention goes, and water retention is helpful when it comes to uh, not peeing out all of your hydration when you have longer efforts, especially in the summer. Is iodine an important and essential nutrient, as, as it says on the salt canister? Yes. Um, but you are you are not falling short by using sea salt that is non-iodized on your eggs. Um, I would not worry even a little bit about that. And the amount of iodine that is interjected into some salts is like so minimal um, that I don't, it's splitting hairs. I, I could, I could leave it at that. Well, what if it's Himalayan? Does that matter? Where in Himalaya did they get it? My goodness. How is it sourced? Was this free range Himalayan sea salt? Well, since it can't roam around, it's salt. It's probably not free range, but could be organic, but could be not. Is anything really organic these days? Now we're asking the questions. Rabbit holes. Now, I don't know iodine's role for the runner compared to any other human. But I do know that when runners think salt, they think water retention and they think mm-hmm. electrolytes. I've never heard iodine referred to as an electrolyte. I've never seen it on any amount of uh, electrolyte research that I've done. I've never seen iodine mentioned. So maybe it's ignorance on my part, but I think that if you're looking at it from a runner perspective, Iodine doesn't really enter the equation. If you're looking at hydration and water retention, it would enter the equation the same way it would any other human with his, which just means that it's nice to have in your diet as a well-rounded individual. Am I wrong on that? No, I wasn't ignoring you. I was looking up best sources of iodine in food. Okay. While you were talking. No, you're not wrong on that. Here you go. One of the, there's only one, two, three, four, five, six, eight things listed. And one of them is eggs, Dan. So who cares what the heck kind of salt you're putting on there? Eggs are a great source of iodine. (laughs) So anyways, here we go. Seaweed, all the seaweeds, fish and shellfish, basically all fish and all shellfish. Looks like my Walmart sushi the day before a race (laughs) is knocking out everything. You got it. Table salts, labeled iodized, dairy, all dairy, milk, cheese, yogurt, eggs, beef liver is a very high source, chicken and fortified, anything fortified with it. This says fortified infant formula. So... Um, apparently if you're looking to get pregnant, you want to keep that iodine high as well. But Dan, I don't think that's the case for you. So, um, that's it. I, I don't know how much we want to spend on it, but, um, I don't think he needs to concern himself, especially cause you're putting it on eggs, Dan. Yeah. This is a classic situation of, uh, worrying about the 0.0001% factor and getting lost in the weeds. Not Dan, the guy or woman who told him that. Well, he's not probably wrong. Like you're getting less iodine because this salt doesn't have iodine in it. Not wrong, but not enough to worry about, especially if you're, again, putting it on eggs. Right. Um, this is from Todd Sholos. Possible question for a Q&A for Bracken, the shoe guru, and, of course, Kirk. <laughs> so much for oh, moving on. <laughs> Todd. Uh, and, of course, Kirk, who probably provide a non-analogous, uh, straightforward answer. <laughs> Analogous. Uh, can you shed some light on the difference between the VJ spark and the extreme two seems like the spark is for shorter races yet. Uh, it has more stack height, which to me would mean possible, possibly a touch more cushion and a little less responsive yet is lighter, which I'm sure is just the rock plate and one millimeter difference in lug depth. I was looking for something for my faster trail workouts and my sprint super Spartans. With the addition of the new ultra two, I'm torn because I'd probably rather have the more versatile shoe. 
any insight? Well, I actually want to hear your insight because you've run in both more mm -hmm. than I have. Both of those I received before injuries. So I still only run three times in the extreme two, but I will start with a general VJ disclaimer before you answer the specifics. Okay. And that is their stats on their website do not always play out the way you'd expect on your feet. The stack height of different shoes, for example, the, uh, the Ice Heroes and the Maxes, to me, are the exact same platform. They look identical. They're shaped identical. They appear to have the same drop, but they have massively different stack heights listed on the website. And I would say the Ice Heroes don't feel that much different, but if anything, they're, they're just a little bit more underneath than the Maxes but they don't have the same stats. And so you see the, the uh, Spark, I believe, has a bigger stack on the website. But to me, the Extreme 2 feels like much more shoe underfoot. So I, I think they're one of the, the brands that you cannot rely on any like uh, regularity between the different models. You have to look at them as all standalone entities. You can't say, well, I ran in the IROC and it had this stack. So the spark's going to work like this because all their shoes are night and day from each other. I agree with that a lot. Um, and I've run in both a good bit now. Um, here's the thing. The spark is one of my favorite shoes VJ has ever come out with. You will never find me running that on any course with hard terrain rocks underfoot or a lot of ascending or descending you can feel everything underneath that shoe it is probably my favorite soft terrain shoe of theirs east coast mountain race sure um but it has no rock plate and you can feel things under your foot i feel fast in the spark i love the spark you wouldn't catch me wearing that shoe on a mountain course to save my life mm -hmm. now the vj extreme 2 is much firmer feel underneath but you're bulletproof when it comes to feeling things underneath your foot. As far as versatility goes, the Extreme 2 also feels pretty fast for the softer, mushy stuff because it's got decent lug depth. So if you're looking for a bang for your buck shoe and you need one, the Extreme 2 is your answer because it's going to cover all your bases. Um, I love that shoe as well. I just It offers more protection. Now, if I had to take two, the, both of those shoes, stack them up next to each other and run a relatively flat 10K Super, I'm going to pick the spark every time. Mm -hmm. However, the, the extreme two is not very far behind. Not at all. Meaning like that's a close second. And I can guarantee it's going to work great for a beast in the mountains, anything else where we got hard, rocky terrain. And so maybe I'm sacrificing a little bit of preference on like a shorter, softer course. Uh, it's so incremental that I would say the extreme two is more versatile, more bang for your buck. You can put it on your foot for any race you toe the line and feel like, you know, you're not going to have to worry about your feet. And so that's where I would say the Extreme 2 shines uh, in versatility. Most versatile shoe uh, VJ has, in my opinion. I can get behind most of that. Okay. What can't you get behind? You said most of that. Uh, I think the Max might be the most versatile mm. shoe to mm. me. But this is the thing about shoes. It's to, to the individual wear. I find the Extreme 2 to be lagging behind the spark in terms of how fast well, I agree. I, I said that. You said to you, it doesn't, but you said it doesn't feel close behind. If I was doing a flat 10K super, I would choose Spark and then I would choose IROC. Hmm. And then I might choose the the Max and then the Extreme too. Hmm. Just the way it feels on my foot. And maybe mine's a half size big. So just the weight, personal differences aside, it is the best all around shoe from VJ. 
And the downside, of, and I feel like the spark was made for my foot. That's one of those I slide my foot in and think this is conformed to my foot. And that spark has like the thicker um, insole, which I love. It's like thick mm-hmm. and spongy and sure it holds a little water, but it is so soft and nice combined with like the responsiveness of the shoe itself. It's just a well, well-made shoe. I agree with you. Continue. But I look at the spark like a tool. If I could only own one, I'd own the extreme two. If I could own all of them, then I grab the spark in there to use it, like you said, when I want it. I'm not going to use it on a jagged course. The extreme two, I would take through any terrain and be fine. And then the final piece is the bottom. I love the spark's bottom, but it doesn't have big lugs, which is fine for what it's intended for. But when they wear down, if you don't have much rubber and you wear down, you lose all grip and you lose some cushion. Where the extreme two, you could lose three mil of lugged rubber. and still have a great shoe there. So if I could only have one, I'm going with the extreme too. I like it. And that wasn't a super shoe question. So I think very, very tolerable. Yes. Uh, Seth Rima. Seth Rima um, was an old client of mine who I actually uh, trained in person here in Minnesota. And then he moved away to the Seattle area. Um, but he's on a running public training plan. So Seth. Is it R-I-M-A? Yeah. Okay. So I, when I was student teaching, I the guy I taught underneath was... R-I-M-A. He was my mentor. Rimey. I'm pretty sure it's Rima. I could be wrong. Seth, correct me. He pronounced it R-I-M-A pronounced Rimey. Hmm. No one understood it. I'm sure someone just pronounced it wrong at some point in his family's <laughs> lineage and they just stuck with it. But that was that was one of the more shocking pronunciations I've seen. Clarify for me, Seth. No, I'm 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 assuming that Rima is correct, but I just, I've known one Rima and he said Rima. Rima would be more phonetically correct, I believe. Or Rima, but not Rima. Help us out, Seth. Reply episode 118 today, around the 30-minute mark. The boys talked about getting better at training, but not improving performance in races. How much of that new stimuli is adjusting the interval workout types versus mental strength work, a la Matt Fitzgerald's great book, How Bad Do You Want It? So I'm really getting how much of that new stimuli is adjusting the intervals workout types versus mental strength work. So are we getting better because of physiological metrics or are we getting better because we become more bulletproof mentally? I think is what he's asked. I think you, you, you get both. They're pretty symbiotic. What we were referring to really in depth, at least I should say what I was thinking about, because we just talked about showing up for yourself with Aaron Azar and turns out what we've been using phrases and meaning two totally different things with yeah, it. Yeah, that's fair. So when I think about getting better at the the training and not at racing, I think about uh, doing the same workout a lot and getting good at the nuances of the workout and maybe nailing your transitions better or knowing your terrain better. How many times do you set out to do uh, a workout, let's say it's around your neighborhood or on your local trail, and then you just learn the curves of how to get in and out of the, the turns and you drop a second or two on your reps, but you haven't gotten more fit and it may not translate to the race course. Maybe it will because you've learned how to address corners and to, to read terrain, but you haven't got any more fit. You could do that workout a hundred times, get better and better and better at your terrain, but at some point your fitness hasn't moved forward. And you have to find new ways to propel your fitness. So that's really what I was referring to is make sure that you're not just getting better at executing your workout. Make sure you're choosing workouts that are challenging your fitness to improve. Yeah. If you do and repeat workouts over and over again, you're going to get better at managing your efforts. I feel like 
understanding the ebb and flow of how you feel and then being able to get the most, uh, the best metrics out of that workout, which can, I mean, obviously that's important to improving out on the race course, but a lot of times people become studs at workouts and they don't see their, their race metrics improve because they've just mastered one thing. And maybe that workout isn't teaching to the test as well as it should. Mm -hmm. It's funny when he, when he brings this up, I actually think about the, and we go down this rabbit hole, but the opposite side of the coin, like, you know, we're at the time of year where I'm starting to hear a little bit about burnout and it can work the opposite way in the sense where like, how many big mental efforts do you have in you before you like, you just run out of them. You run out of matches in your mm -hmm. matchbook and sure you've been training your ass off and you've been training hard and having great workouts. And pretty soon you're like, God, I just don't have it today mentally. And you've like burnt all those matches. It can just, it's just interesting. Cause I've had that conversation with a few people and we've been taking some mandatory rest weeks that are unplanned and they've been serving a huge purpose. Like people have been freshening up and getting their vigor back. But there's also that component on the other side where it's like all these big mental efforts of training and racing. Um, I feel like I got none left and you'll hear people talk about like, I only got two, three good races in me a year where I go to the well. So sometimes that factors in too. You can be getting worse because you're getting mentally weaker is what I'm saying. And when that happens, that's time for more of a mental break to, to recharge up your, your efforts. Um, and I'm not going anywhere specific with that other than I just have noticed that with a few athletes lately. And, um, it also works the opposite way of, of the way Seth worded his question. Well, it highlights one of the one of the issues with compromised run training, which is when you add skill work of any sort in between running, you immediately complicate the equation because you're going to get better at that work and it's going to make your runs look better or worse as a result. And whenever there's a second variable, it's harder to tell what actually improved. So it's why I don't like super complicated compromised run workouts. When you throw up tons of different stimulus, like this round, we're doing this and next round, we're doing this and this round, we're doing this. And we're going to try this crazy movement here. I like to stick to standard, you know, tuck jumps, walking lunges, burpees, ground to overhead, just grip switch, things that are pretty sterile in terms of you're not going to get crazy better. And if you do, then you just adjust how many of those reps you're doing and then into an extended run. But if all I did were OCR 400s and just kept changing up the reps and the, or the, the type of reps I'm doing for the strength, I don't think I would get my max out of it because I would just get better at OCR 400s. Mm -hmm. So it is, it is a potential downside with what we believe, which is compromised running, but the, the workouts that are our bread and butter are our, you know, mile on 60 seconds off or thousands with 40 second rest. When you have short rest, you can't really fudge the system. And and that's why we go back to those simple workouts. Well, and that's where most people get it wrong. Like, yes, it's good to give you a lot of rest in certain workouts so you can run fast, but those workouts actually move the needle mm -hmm. significantly less as far as translating to the race than like the longer, harder sessions with shorter rest. Cause that's really what the race is going to feel like, right? You're never going to be recovered in the middle of the race. You're never going to, you're going to be in lactate threshold the entire time. Uh, you know what I'm getting at here. So, um, yeah, a lot of times you'll find athletes get stuck in like, I'm going to do five by a mile with three minutes rest. Well, that's, that's a great workout and it has its place, but repeating a workout with such high rest, like eventually you're going to see your gains just really peter off pretty quick when you're giving yourself that sort of recovery. This is an interesting kind of rabbit hole you've opened up here. Whoops. We talk a lot about why we like longer rep workouts, but that you have to do short workouts, fast workouts to improve as well. 
And, and I think this brings it back to, you have to know why you're doing each workout. There are workouts to do for engine building, and there are workouts to do for skill work. And you don't want to confuse the two. You talk about your 12 by 400 workout, makes your fitness pop. You feel fast. You're ready to go out and run fast. That's four by four by four. That's true. Mine's 12 by 400. Yours is four by four by 400. Mm Mm-hmm. And the great workouts, but if those were our primary movers for our fitness, if we were doing those to build fitness and build our engine as our number one workout of the week, we would really be selling ourselves short. Those are good for sharpening and they're good for teaching your body to run fast with great form and with fatigue in your legs, but they're not the ultimate engine builder workout. Those are a skill workout and a sharpening workout that have to be thrown on the top of the grindy work. And it's something you do a great job of. It's something I try to keep a handle on in the the workouts that I program for people is we have to know that our short recovery reps, our long quality workouts, those build our engine and we can only do our four by four by 400 when we've already established our fitness. You're that's that's choosing the wrong workout or the right workout for what you're trying to accomplish. So we can't exist off 200s and 400s trying to run a great half marathon, but we can have 200s and 400s to enhance our ability based off of our half marathon work we've put in. Right. Those workouts are layered in on top of other really purposeful work Yes, uh, that is much less sexy uh, on paper, so to speak. So the spicy, multidimensional compromise run workouts, I program some of those but they come after you've done a lot of boring, grindy work. You can't build your fitness upon that platform. It has to be added to an already existing platform. Exactly. Um, Next one, Kendra Cowley. Hey, Kirk and Bracken, this is Tate Cowley. I hacked my wife's Instagram just to ask you this question. So never mind, Tate Cowley. Uh, (laughs) That's dedication to ask a question, by the way. Um, I'll be starting my medical residency in July. Between 70 to 80 hour weeks, a wide, oh, oh, a wide, he meant wife in asterisks. Uh, when in July? <laughs> see, I don't know. We'll see how soon we, I don't know. It doesn't specify. After the 19th. Between 70 to 80 hour works week, work weeks, a wife and two young kids. My time for training will be greatly reduced. Best case scenario. I hope to commit 30 minutes per day to training five to five thirty AM with one to two hour sessions on my off day. I also plan to switch my focus to shorter events, DECA stadium and sprints. What tips or recommendations do you have for programming? And do you think it's still possible to compete for podiums at the elite level for these shorter events? I'll be living in Southern California and live just two miles from the hospital, so could easily run, bike to work basically every day. Thanks, boys. And hit me up for all your future orthopedic surgery needs. I know you two are repeat customers. (laughs) Winky face. (laughs) Oh, he's got jokes. Yeah. (laughs) And he's not wrong. (laughs) You You want to jump in? Sure. Great question, Tate. And, uh... Props for the hustle you are about to endure. Um, First of all, the fact that you can take one day a week and get in a longer effort tells me you're going to be just fine. Mm -hmm. You could get by with half an hour purposeful work Monday through Friday or Saturday with one long effort over the weekend, and you're not going to lose jack shit. Um, And also, the fact that you just opened up the box of being able to go to and from work um, volume is volume in my opinion, Mm -hmm. um, is fantastic. I mean, leaving for work early, 
hitting up an interval workout on the way and then cooling down, you know, might get you 45 minutes of work in, for example, versus a half an hour then having to drive into work. And so without question, there's ways to do this. And I don't think you need to like exhaust yourself by getting four hours of sleep, waking up at 3.30 in the morning to get a full workout in during the week. What I think you do is you get in one short spicy workout during the week. That could just mean a 30-minute tempo run. It could mean intervals mixed in and then you get in your long run over the weekend and once in a while throw in a quality long run and you're going to have all the stimulus you need. In fact, um, that doesn't worry me at all for you. So the answer, yes, you can still podium. Yes, you can still have purposeful training. Yes, it's going to be a little less volume than you're used to. But one long run over the weekend is enough stimulus to keep your endurance up. And if you keep some quality in there during the week, you're going to be just fine. So actually, I'm not worried for you. I know you're going to be exhausted, so maybe you're going to hit some of these workouts sleep-deprived and tired. That I feel for you with. But as far as like the um, the schedule, just from afar, I think, uh, I think it's very possible, man. 100%. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. If you get most of your run volume in to and from work, you're going to be getting four to five miles per day. If you add a little on, you can hit four to six miles per day. That's enough for a DECA. Absolutely. And then I think you just train in a vacuum. You have days where, since you're going to be doing that each day, you've got 30 minutes in the morning, make one a ski or a bike day, make another a row day, make another a Metcon day, and then put everything together on your weekends. Do some real long runs and do some long mixed modality stuff. Or you might do your big interval session followed by some sort of DECA finisher. But yeah, train in isolation throughout the week and then throw things together into a big stew on the weekend in an intelligent, progressive manner. I think you, that might even be the best way Mm -hmm. to train for DECA. And I think like um, just listening to your schedule, you have a wife at home, kids, you're going to be working 70, 80 hour weeks. You're going to be sleeping less. There's no way you can't sleep less with a schedule like that. Don't pressure yourself to squeeze too much in and get everything done. Like one workout that counts in the middle of the week and then one workout that counts over the weekend, which is a long run. Don't try to get cute. Like keep your efforts recovery on everything else because you're probably not getting the sleep and recovery Mm -hmm. elsewhere you need. Your eating is going to be probably somewhat crappier due to the schedule. I'm working with an athlete right now who's in residency. um, And we've, we've had to accept that we're going three days a week right now of workouts. That's it. I mean, all workouts. And we're just going to have to be that way for a little while because he's just running on fumes. And so point being, um, make sure you're recovering and taking those days easy. And then just look at two big stimulus each week. One that stings a bit and then one that's longer and sometimes stings a bit as well with it. Mm -hmm. That's how I would look at it. Yeah. And I think you can throw out certain rules that we usually talk about because you're not going to be having crazy volume. If you've got 20 minutes available someday, go out the door, jog easy for a half mile, run hard for 10 minutes and get home. Mm Mm-hmm. You can do that two or three times a week or run moderate for 20 minutes, three times a week. If you're not doing big volume, 80, 20 matters less. So you take what you can get in the biggest thing Kirk is right about. You just don't stress over it. Yep, exactly. I don't know if I have much else to add to that. Um, Sounds like Tate knows what he's doing. He's an accomplished athlete who's looking to podium. So I think he'll figure it out. What do you think? Yeah, and and he's right. Going the Decker route means you can get away with way less endurance. Um. Damn it with these shoe questions. Kelly Wiggins. <laughs> um, this is actually a, a different topic, though. So, Kelly, good question, actually. Follow-up shoe question. What shoes do you use for weight training? Great question. We don't, we've never been asked that, actually. Yeah. It depends who you ask. There are some people who will say, just don't wear shoes. Be barefoot or in socks 
And that's your absolute best. Some people insist on platform shoes. Some people will insist it doesn't matter as long as you're not in running shoes. And then other people will look at some high level athletes and say, well, Hunter was just lifting in his Brooks launch. It doesn't, it really doesn't matter. What I would say is whenever possible, do it barefoot in your socks. If mm-hmm. that works, that that's, that's the simplest thing, but I do a lot of mine in my razor threes or in my Nike streaks. I either use real low drop. I have a pair of ultras sometimes I use, but most of the time in my basement, I'm barefoot. Yeah. Um, it doesn't really matter. <laughs> uh, I would say that you feel a little more connected and stable in a shoe that doesn't have a huge stack height or doesn't have a lot of cushion. So a traditional weightlifting shoe like the Nike Metcon is a great shoe, bang for your buck. You want something hard and firm under your feet that doesn't allow you to sort of rotate left to right very easily. Um, So the Nike Metcon is basically a slab of hard plastic underneath, like an insert, and there you have a shoe, right? But it just allows, you know, I think the biggest thing in a shoe is don't cram your foot into a sh- your lifting shoe. Have a shoe that allows your toes to splay out a little bit. So instead of getting like this nice tight narrow shoe, I think if you're going to make any decision, which barefoot is a great one, allowing your toes to do what they need to do so you can move appropriately um, and ground yourself well, especially for leg work. So I think number one, which isn't talked about enough, a shoe that allows your toes to splay out. So don't cram your feet into a nice tight little shoe. You're much better off um, staying away from cushion for your lifting shoe and then one that isn't too narrow. Whether you go barefoot um, or not, I mean, barefoot is great. A lot of guys at the gym walk around with these disgusting-looking socks on that are like their gym socks. we got a couple of them that, that come at our gym and do that. But um, I would just say avoid really cushioned shoes um, if you're doing a lot of heavy leg work. But, I mean, I squatted this week in a pair of craft running shoes that was sent to me last year by Spartan, and it worked out just fine. So who am I to talk? Yeah. Yeah. It's one of those things that matters more, the more weight you move. Yep. And the commonality at the high end of people really lifting, it's barefoot or completely flat, relatively firm shoes. And yeah, the Metcon's a great one to, if you, if you just want a blank recommendation, order the Nike Metcon. Mm -hmm. And they have a few forms of it. It doesn't matter which form you get. I don't think you'll be upset with that. Um, next two questions are shoe questions, Bracken. Do you want to skip them? <laughs> no, I don't. I just, it's just funny that I know there's a sector of our audience, which is like Jesus crime and he lay off the shoes guys, but this isn't us. This is on other people. So blame them. There's a reason there's so many shoe questions. They must be answered. All right. Drew Johnson. <clears throat> First off, I love your guys show. Listen to every episode and it's one of my main motivators to keep putting in work. So thank you both for that. Uh, you're welcome, Drew. I had a shoe question and it might be a shot in the dark because I know Bracken says busy as all Bracken stays busy as all hell. Not Kirk. You <laughs> lazy POS. I am I am really I am just milking life over here. Um I'm coming back to running. Don't confuse me not getting back to people on Instagram as being the busier of us too. <laughs> I just don't like social media. It's a check mark in both the negative and positive column for you, Bracken. I'm coming back uh coming back to running after some time off and some weight gain. Currently, the goals are to drop 20 pounds, sitting at 207 now, get my 5K to under 30 minutes, then get to training for OCR, namely sprints. I run the Hoka Clifton now for the support with my weight. Is there a shoe you might recommend for the transition time to weight loss building into speed? Not looking for a super shoe necessarily, but don't want to buy something that would essentially be half-ass either. I don't necessarily understand what the transition to weight loss into speed means. I think as he's losing weight, should he consider a different shoe? I love the Hoka Clifton, by the way, for where you're at. If like 
I love the cushion. I also love the responsiveness of it. I wear it at 170 pounds for my recovery work, and sometimes I tempo in it just for funsies. Um, I think the Clifton's a fantastic transition shoe that would fit the bill for most things right now. But um, I'm very biased towards the Hoka Clifton because I love that shoe. Mm-hmm. So, I guess I, as much of a shoe person as I am, I also like to keep it simple. And I know that sounds hypocritical for me, but that's my recommendation is keep it simple. If you're needing a new shoe, I think you're going to know it. If you're just curious, satisfy your curiosity, go try something different. But if you don't need it, maybe don't mess with it because so many times someone just tries a new shoe and suddenly they have an injury or they have a flare up. So if it's working, keep it working. But the easiest thing to do is stay within the same shoe brand and either go up or down in cushioning or in firmness. So if you're feeling like, like what Tim Lambiris talked about, the Hoka Clifton might be too soft. Check out something like maybe the Mach, M-A-C-H. It's more firm. It's a little got a little bit more pep to it, but a lot of people love it. Or just go down to the Rincon. Rincon. R-I-N-C-O-N. Rincon. Rincon. Let's say Rincon. The Rincon. That's like a Clifton, but stripped down. Less foam, less everything. So finding up or down in stack height or in firmness or softness is probably the safest move to make. But realistically, we see 120-pound runners in max cushion shoes and in minimal shoes. We see 280 pound runners in max cushion shoes or minimal shoes. Your body knows what works for it and it'll announce to you when it's ready to try something different. What do you think about uh, something like the Alpha Fly for a gentleman like this? If he wants to transition to quality work, which was sort of a question I feel like he was asking. Um, what do you think about a shoe like that for a 200 pound runner? I have two views on super shoes. The first is that as a performance aid, they help you more the faster you are. You get more out of the shoe. Running at nine minute pace, they do not give you the same benefit as five minute pace. The longer your compression into the shoe lasts, the slower they come up off the ground, which means the slower it can rebound against your foot and help you. So in terms of a performance aid, I don't love seeing people racing or running in super shoes if they're not running very fast. But at the same time, as we talked about the force reduction, all of that, yeah, it makes a lot of sense getting into a shoe that helps you take percentages off your body weight, essentially, is not a bad thing. But I don't see it as mandatory one way or the other because I don't view those shoes as mandatory. I know that's gray area, but this is a gray area thing. I was just curious as to your take. Um, next shoe question, John C. Donnelly. I've always been curious since the both of you have so many shoes. What do you do with the old shoes that need to be taken out of rotation? Question mark. Well, if I absolutely love them, they go up on my wall of fame. Mm-hmm. If I still can use the tread in the future, I keep them around for Frankenstein shoe projects. Otherwise, I give them away when possible. I goodwill or give to any shoe donation bin if they're really towards the end of their life. And if they are brand, brand new, and I don't have someone that I think it'll fit perfectly, like an athlete of mine that I want to send it to, then I just sell them. Mine go immediately into a shelf in my garage for the lawnmowing outdoor category. Mm. And the ones that I really like how they look uh, go right into my wash machine. I'm not going to run in them anymore. So they get washed up, they get a a little makeover. And then I once, once in a while wear them around in life. Um, 
And we conveniently have a shoebox at my gym uh, that's always there. Uh, kicks for kids. They're something no, that would make sense because kids aren't wearing my 10 and a half. I don't know what it is, but I throw my shoes in there. So I donate them. Um, and honestly, some have been so far gone that I just toss them. I'll be the first to tell you that I do toss shoes once in a while. Um, but mostly they go into the lawnmower. I'm a big outdoor hiker, hunter guy. And so when I go out in the woods, I wear an old pair of hiking shoes if I'm putting on our trail running shoes, but yeah, nothing fit, nothing that you haven't heard before. I don't think I'm not doing anything crazy with them, but the ones I really think are cute, get the wash machine and then they get put into like the lifestyle rotation. That's right. Uh, Amelia just says Amelia. Uh, Hey guys, first, thanks for creating such an awesome podcast. It has kept me company throughout many solo runs and workouts during COVID over the past two years. Now it's keeping me feeling connected to the running OCR world while I'm off after giving birth to twins. Congratulations. Congratulations, Amelia. Uh, a question for your Q&A episode, please. For someone sitting up, uh, setting up a home gym, what are your must-have key pieces of equipment to train for OCR slash running? Getting to the gym is going to be a challenge for a while, so my partner and I are looking at setting up a gym at home. My goals are OCR and trail running focused. His are more general strength fitness. To make this question more interesting for listeners, could you break it down by budget? For example, lower budget, say under 500, moderate budget, 1,000, higher budget, 2,000. Feel free to ignore the money values. They're completely arbitrary, but you get the idea. Um, love, 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 love this question, Amelia. Mm-hmm. Here's what I think you can do. I'm going to ignore your budget. Actually, you know what? I won't. Here's the problem. <laughs> <laughs> the problem with your first budget of 500 bucks is a good set of adjustable dumbbells costs 500 bucks. So you're pigeonholed right there. And that's the first thing mm-hmm. I'm going to tell you to get is a set of adjustable dumbbells and get the heaviest ones you can afford. Mine go up to 55 and a half pounds. They're a Nordic track. Uh, Bowflex makes a great option, but they cost like 550 bucks for a good set of adjustable dumbbells. So then you're already done. Like your budget has been spent. And I think adjustable dumbbells are the most versatile to do anything you want with. So that's where I start. Um, if you can go up to the 1000 to $2,000 range and you want to be able to like work out in this gym for life, they make fantastic fold from the wall, half or quarter squat racks that you can use that just bolt into your wall, fold down. You buy a barbell, you buy that quarter squat rack, you buy $225 worth of plates, and you can do absolutely everything you need with that. On top of that, you buy one set of adjustable dumbbells and an adjustable bench. That way you can do all your dumbbell work. You have everything you need. And all you really have are like two key pieces of equipment, and it covers your strength bases anyways. And I think you could probably get that quarter wall set up with the barbell and weights for maybe 1000 to 1500 bucks, and then you can get your adjustable dumbbells an adjustable incline bench uh, for, let's say, 500 to 700 So I think you could put together a great home gym for under $2,000, and that's going to pay off itself in a year or two, and you don't pay a gym membership. Simple as that. So I think if you have the space, that is absolutely the way to go on the strength front. That combination will get you the entire way there. And then once you save up, you can buy your implements like your sandbags and your your ram rams and for ram burpees and all that. But that's where I would start. And that's, of course, keeping cardio equipment off the table. But mm-hmm. um, what about you, Bracken? What do you think of that? Well, I think that's the, the cardio equipment is actually where I start is do I want cardio equipment or not? Train from home as a runner. If you can afford a treadmill, to me, if I had to live in isolation for however long, let's say five years, and I wanted to come out in the best possible shape afterwards. I would want at the bare minimum, a treadmill and a pull-up bar. And I'm a happy man because mm-hmm. you can do push-ups, You can do handstand push-ups. 
any sort, I, I really anything on the bar possible. I can get my push. I can get my pull. I can get my running. I think I would come out of there almost as in as good a shape as if I had an entire gym at my disposal. But the treadmill blows your budget immediately. So if you can't get a treadmill, here's what I have done with my own gym, taking my treadmill out. I buy every single thing used. My current squat rack, I paid maybe $80 for. It's a bench slash squat rack. So I don't have to adjust it between the two. I can just go up, go down, and it has many safety bars on the bottom. $80 used. My weight set, I have a an Olympic barbell, and I want to say 285 pounds of weights, and I got that on sale, plus I had a coupon, and I think I paid 220 for that. So now we're sitting at 300 total dollars for enough weight for the average runner. I then splurged on some 45-pound bumper plates. That took me up over 300 pounds, which is enough weight to do anything I'll ever need to do. Um, that's three, I have 370 pounds of 375, I think of weights sitting right there. And that was, I got them through Walmart. And again, I think it was $90. So now for $390, I have all the weights I'll ever, ever need. And my new rack came with a lat pulldown attachment. So I can load weight on the back. That's of a steal, by the way, I would like to interject real quick and say that you're, 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 on the backside of this COVID scramble with buying weights Mm -hmm. and you have a bunch of people who've let them sit around for a year or two and now are selling them. So Bracken outlining buying things secondhand, it was impossible to do a year or two ago, but now people are realizing it's sat in their basement and they're ready to sell. So now's a really good time to go look because you're getting secondhand stuff from people who bought and aren't using it. So I would, it's a great place to start right now. And you're seeing that stuff start to saturate the market again. Finally. Mm Mm-hmm. I, I splurged for a nice pull-up bar, but prior to that, I had used ones for 20 bucks. Uh, all of our dumbbells are garage sale, hand-me-down, or bought used somewhere, aside from one pair of nice hex dumbbells. But I would say our entire dumbbell set, which I, I bought adjustable, um, I bought loadable dumbbells from Titan Fitness, and those I can load up with the weights I already have. So I can take it up to it's a, it's a mini barbell. So it fits the full Olympic plates on it. So I can go as big as I want. And those were probably like $90. So $90, I have my full adjustable dumbbell set. It just takes longer to adjust. I got one Schwinn Airdyne for free in an alley. The other one I paid $30 for that has a working display. So if you don't have a treadmill, get a Schwinn Airdyne. It's not as nice as a Rogue or anything like that, but it's going to do almost the exact same workout. It just counts calories faster. So suddenly there, I have an entire gym. I found a pair of used rings so I can do dip work. I can do inverted rows, whatever I want to do. And then I found a shorty bar for sale. So I can do, I can have a second bar that I load up. So I have a full gym now and all those things I added up are under $600. Wow. So point being, I know that was long-winded, but take your time, go on Facebook Marketplace, check rummage sales. You can buy everything used, including an incline trainer. They're harder to find, but that's the only piece of equipment. Oh, and then spin bike. I fully recommend Sunny Health and Fitness. They basically get their bike frames from a, a Schwinn or I think it's a Schwinn factory. They slap their own decals on it. You don't get a monitor and you can get a fantastic bulletproof bike for under what, under 280, I think. Hmm. I, I've had mine for nine years now. I saw it in a hotel and I thought if it's good enough for a hotel, it's good enough for me. Bought it. 
no issues. $265, nine years of a spin bike. It's not fancy, but it's bulletproof. You got quite the home setup. I didn't know you had all that equipment. Yeah, I found a Concept 2 rower for, I think, 240 That's That's a steal. I mean, I consider myself one of the more strong, muscly guys, and all I have is a set of adjustable Nordic Trek dumbbells, mm. a, a pull-up dip station, and my treadmill. That's it. I don't even have a bench. I do all my stuff on the floor because I have a smaller room. I don't want to put too much stuff in there, and then I, when I hit the gym, I hit the gym, and I maintain my strength just fine with this. But, yeah. I mean, really, if I could say four pieces of equipment – Quarter squat rack off the wall with some barbells, adjustable dumbbells and a bench, a Nordic track incline trainer and an assault bike. And your needs are met for perpetuity. Yes. And then as Bracken said, slowly add in the other specificity things. Yeah. The DECA implements, the other stuff that you might want later. But you can find everything used you ever need. We could do an entire episode about building your home gym and maybe we should. But let's leave it here. And then let's also just do one more question because it's the weekend. So let's keep this thing to an hour. What do you think? Yeah. Let's go out on top. You got, you got to get camping. You got to get packing. Um, we packed. We got ahead of it. Are you really? Yeah. We Well, because we haven't taken the new pop-up out yet. So yesterday I took it up and down a couple times to make sure everything was functioning. And we had to see how much would fit in it. So we're actually all packed and set. All we have to do is load up food and go. Hmm. Send me a photo of that thing. I want to see it. Oh, I will. Um, Paul Cornelius says, Hey guys, I apologize if this question has been asked before, but I can't seem to find an answer in previous podcasts. For my recovery work, I try to cross train to minimize impact due to being 6'2", 215 pounds. Is switching exercises halfway through detrimental or beneficial to my recovery work? I get bored on the elliptical with 30 plus minutes and want to jump off and go on a bike ride. Thanks for reading. Love the info you guys provide. If it's pure recovery work, it does not matter. If you get your blood pumping, if you get your muscles going through some range of motion, you could switch exercises every 30 seconds all day long, and it's fine. If you want to build specific fitness, then you need targeted workouts. But even those can be switched. But recovery work is recovery. If the only purpose is recover, then it doesn't. your body doesn't care. Split it up however the heck you want to. Um, as long as you're specific with your run training for whatever events you have coming up, meaning you are doing your hill work, you are doing, if you have a hilly race coming up or yada, yada, you get it. Um, I don't care at all. No, I, I just think some implements are harder, uh, pieces of equipment are harder to get your heart rate up than others. Like getting on the spin bike is tough to get that heart rate up. Sometimes it takes a mental effort to get the heart rate into a zone that's even worth your time. For me anyway, sometimes it is. So, you know, like those multi upper body, lower body um, pieces of equipment I find are much easier for me to cross train well on. Rower, assault bike, elliptical with some resistance on it. Um, I like those just because I don't have to mentally work very hard to get my heart rate up. I love recovery work on my assault bike because like my heart rate gets up without like a big mental effort because it's requiring my upper body to work as well. It takes me twice the mental effort on a spin bike to get my heart rate at the same place that it does on my assault bike. Mm -hmm. That sounds silly and almost contradictory, but it's true. I want to save my mental efforts for the tough days, the run days. So the assault bikes become my favorite piece of a, uh, not only like hard equipment, but recovery equipment as well. So I like the upper and lower body combo equipment for recovery days just a little bit more, but that's personal preference. Yeah. You're smiling. Why are you smiling? Because I'm the exact opposite. <laughs> of course you are. I find the fact that it takes engagement for me to, st to stay relaxed enough on a rower or an assault bike to keep my heart rate aerobic that I don't want to think on an easy day. I want to check out hmm. and I can't check out on those because I find I either go too easy or it turns into a moderate day. So I save 
my upper and lower mixed cardio stations for when I want to do quality. Hmm. And I love getting on the spin bike for recovery. And I don't look at heart rate at all because I can't get it up, but I know I'm still getting benefit. Or at least I like to tell myself that. So I go totally off of perceived exertion thinking about my legs. Hmm. I just let my legs tell me how they want to work. And I don't even look at heart rate because I know it's going to be 118 or 112 Mm -hmm. or 120. And that's okay with me. So I do the exact opposite. That's funny. Basically, uh, just do whatever the heck you want. So yeah. it sounds like it doesn't matter. Yeah. <laughs> Find comfort in switching, you know, as long as you're not dawdling in between and getting right from one to the next and keeping that heart rate like somewhat aerobic, then whatever, whatever, whatever. If switching gets the work done, that's what matters. If it allows you to be consistent, switch and be happy that you have a luxury of different equipment to use. Yeah, I think we leave it that simple, to be honest with you. Um, we have a few more questions in there we didn't get to, but couple months, we'll throw those back up. I think so. Kirk, guess what I get to start doing tomorrow? Running without stopping. Without stopping. <laughs> I only have to stop when I want to now. It's fantastic. Well, tell how. what's like this last week of running look like for you? Every other day, intervals. Like what was the last interval session you did? I did an aerobic 30-30 for 75 minutes. Hmm. You ever done that? Nope. Yep. I worked at the the pace of my current aerobic threshold, maybe a tenth of a mile per hour over what I could actually be for my aerobic threshold, but I did 30 on, 30 off for 75 minutes. So you're running like, well, I mean, were you looking at pace or heart rate? Heart rate, I assume. No, well, I did prior to surgery. My final run that I did on the treadmill was aerobic heart rate and lactate threshold training or testing. So I did, I want to say I did three by 15 minutes at threshold just to dial in my, my miles per hour at 6% incline. Cause I was going to target 6% afterwards. So I was working mm-hmm. off of those premises. So I'm probably a little less fit now, yep. which is why I say it's probably a 10th of a mile per hour over what my aerobic threshold would be. But yeah, I'm going off the pace goal, aerobic threshold pace, but as 30 on 30 off. So it's not a hard workout, but you're sweating and you're, Yep. You're moving. It's probably hard to force yourself to stop after running for 30 seconds every time. I have to set my watch to vibrate and beep. Otherwise, I found myself when I was looking at the treadmill, I was doing 60-60 the week prior. I'd look down, it'd been like two and a half minutes. I'm like, oh, shoot. (laughs) Come on. That's tough. Well, good, man. That's exciting. So you're just going to go out and start running aerobically this next week and stop if your intuition tells you to. Otherwise, just nice steady effort maybe. Yeah. And and I'm gonna I'm gonna still try to do primarily treadmill for the first couple of weeks, which is great because world championships are happening right now and I'm not watching any of it. I'm gonna watch it all on Peacock afterwards. Me either. I'm saving it. And uh we're camping, so I'll have soft trails. Dude, Peacock is so good for the live track and field coverage. So good. We got it to watch Yellowstone and I thought I'd keep it for a month or two. We finish That's it. That's what we then... got it for too. That's Did you exactly really? what we got it for, yeah. Look at us. Cute. We were probably watching at the same time. Mm, it was this winter sometime. Yeah. Good old rip taking people to the train station. Sure is. Anyway, I kept it because I realized they have every diamond league on there. They have triathlon. Braden got into car racing. It's it's I think it's right now probably the best bang for your buck for sports for endurance sports fans. What is it like 10 bucks a month? I don't even know what it is. I think it's less. It's on Jess's account. So I don't even see it come out, but it's perfect. Cheap. Perfect is right. <laughs> <laughs> All right. 
Well, sir, enjoy camping. Uh, I guess um, what we're gonna still we'll be able to get out a, an interview episode because you'll be back from camping in time to record. So Thursday, Justin Hamilton part two. Yeah, we're gonna talk uh, ultras, and it's I got a couple athletes running Ode to Laz. I got two, it's supposed to be three. Um, so that'll come out the Friday before Ode, mm-hmm. which I know some of you will be paying attention to. So hopefully, maybe we have too late to learn, but good enough to keep you company while you're out there. And then after you have an experience out there on course, you take what we talk about and you you use it for the next race. Yeah. Commiserate. That's right. And we have a race brain, I believe, this week, don't we? Yeah. You going to be able to make that work? I'm going to find a way to make it work, Kirk. You always do. I'm either going to drive back or I'll do the old Kirk and grab a hotel or find something. I've done that like, I don't know, two or three times now. You guys don't know this, but I will buy a hotel room for one night simply to go in and use it to record a podcast on their Wi-Fi and then go right back to my campground. So I've done that. Yeah. Running public has cost me. Yeah. Cost me. Since COVID, they've offered more work from hotel type deals where you can get day use. Mm. And then there's an app called Day Use where you can find hotels that will allow you to book that checkout to check-in time slot. See, when I'd be hunting over the weekend, I would go and like use the shower to be like, oh, I'll record and I'll get to take a shower. Oh, uh, yeah. And I'll, so, yeah, it was like the amenities were worth it. But yeah, so that's probably what I'll end up doing. Cool, man. Well, have fun. Thank you. All right. Great seeing you on a weekend. I'm going to go do this thing. Yeah, buddy. Mm-hmm.